I'm Eric Finderhut, and this is The Glue, the podcast where we talk about the things that hold our communities together in a world that's so often driving us apart. Now, many of the listeners of The Glue care deeply, uh, as do the Jewish federations that I have the privilege of working with, about what happens in the state of Israel, our Jewish state. Uh, and these last uh, months have been dominated by the uh, divisive and challenging proposals that came from the new government uh, that that have been called under the label of judicial reform. People argue that that's not the right title. Some people call it judicial coups. Some people call it various other things, but we'll call it judicial reform for purpose of this discussion. And the protests that have arisen against it, uh, as listeners most likely know, the new government of Israel, which took office about eight months ago, uh, in their very first week in office, proposed a sweeping package of bills that would change the balance of power between the Knesset, the elected uh, legislature, um, and uh, which is also controlled by the government, the governing coalition in this parliamentary system, and the independent Supreme Court, just as an example, one of the most sweeping elements of this uh, set of proposals would have allowed the Knesset uh, by a simple majority, 61 votes out of 120, to override a decision uh, of the Supreme Court. Now, Israel's role as a model democracy in the Middle East and, in, and indeed in the world is one of the essential components of uh, upon which the support for Israel and our Jewish communities uh, in North America and uh, and certainly with our government officials, one of the essential elements upon which it's built. Um, and, uh, and therefore, it became very important to us at the Jewish Federations of North America that we help the Israeli leaders understand the impact that this debate was having uh, in North America in our communities, and and we reached out to do that in any number of ways, with meetings in Israel, with webinars, with with uh, phone calls, statements, uh, etc. Uh, but the more uh, we uh, became involved in these discussions, and of course, the more dramatic the protests uh, uh, became in Israel, the more concerned we truly became uh, about the essential. Uh, civil discourse in Israel uh, and saw how this pro how this this set of issues and the protests were tearing apart the basic fabric the glue that holds uh, Israel's diverse society together and because we love Israel so much I have to say to be honest the the concern for Israel's internal uh, societal structure uh, became the dominant uh, issue of concern uh, as we approach these issues uh, you know, we have we have difficult uh, political debates uh, in America. We haven't uh, always been civil with each other, but we do understand that civility is an important part of the equation. You know, many of our listeners know I, I had the privilege of serving as a member of the state legislature in Ohio, as a member of the United States House of Representatives, um, and we have protocols about how we address each other 
even in difficult debates, the distinguished gentle lady from North Carolina, my the chair, the former chair of the Jewish Federation of North America, Kathy Manning, the distinguished gentleman, the senator from this area, the senator from that area uh, of Ohio. We do this for a reason, not because we necessarily like each other or because there's anything upon which we agree, but because, like my parents always taught me, derech eretz kadma Torah, how you treat people comes even before the rules themselves. And so uh, with that in mind, the the issue of, uh, of the glue that holds Israeli society together comes uh, to the fore, uh, and that is our subject today with our wonderful guest, Yaniv Cohen. Now, before I turn to Yaniv, uh, just to, uh, to, to underscore this point about the, the divisiveness occurring in Israel, the, one of the sources of the thinking that, that led to the set of proposals, legislative proposals on the table, is an organization, a think tank in Israel called the Kohelet Forum. And as it turns out, the Kohelet Forum, again, this think tank that's been, uh, that's been the source of so many of these ideas, had as one of its major funders an American philanthropist, happens to be a, phil- a businessman in Philadelphia. And there's a news story that this uh, philanthropist, this businessman in Philadelphia, has decided to end his funding of the Kohelet Forum and I thought it was really powerful and frankly touching to me the reasons he gave. And I'm going to quote. This is from an interview he gave in the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is his hometown paper. He said, when society is divided in a way that endangers democracy, the order of the day is to focus on bringing hearts together. He continued, throughout my entire life, I supported a variety of organizations that promote individual liberties and economic freedom for every person. That's his political philosophy. Those are the things he funds. But he went on to say, I believe that in this moment, the thing that the state of Israel needs the most is the fusion of divisions and the rehabilitation of the national unity. So Yaniv Cohen uh, is probably one of the best positioned people to give us not just an insider's view of what's happening in Israel with regard to the specifics of the judicial uh, reform, uh, but also the impact it's having on Israeli society and ultimately the cohesion uh, of our Jewish state. Yaniv is the founder and chairman of Tachlit, which is the Israeli Institute for Public Policy. It's a nonpartisan think tank dedicated to strengthening Israeli society and democracy. But importantly, he served as President Herzog's lead negotiator in the recent compromise talks over Israel's judicial reform. So Yaniv, welcome to The Glue. Hello, Eric. Thank you for having me. Uh, so uh, you, you must have uh, one of the most interesting and, uh, and for this moment, uh, perhaps one of the most important jobs uh, in, in Israel. But before we get to that, uh, why don't you tell us about Tahlit and, and what the, the mission of your uh, organization is? Sorry, as you mentioned, Tahlit is an institute, a non-for-profit, a non-partisan, uh, uh, policy-oriented research center, relatively young and relatively small, uh, that we founded in order to find, uh, we would say, a policy that works. We identified in Israel that Israel is a divided country in terms of policy and politics. We identified that the issues that uh, keeps us apart are becoming stronger and stronger. We, We identified that Israeli society, in terms of policy and politics, as, and, and you mentioned it pretty well at the beginning of your uh, the introduction that you've made. Uh, we're in a crisis. We're in a political crisis for 
past three to four years, five election cycles and other problems. And we have established Tachlit in order to have an, an institute that is not ideologically oriented, but policy oriented. When we work on policies, and we will discuss it later on, when we work on policies, we try to find policies that works. We call it, we first make a plan that works and then we work the plan. Uh, we try to find areas of consent within Israeli society and within Israeli political system, working with decision makers, elected and appointed, in order to implement them. So uh, congratulations and, and thank you for, for doing that important work. And the idea of finding consensus, cons you know, consent, places where we agree as opposed to places where we disagree is a really important uh, uh, responsibility. And we thank you for that. So, you know, there's a, a famous song, uh, you know, from Hamilton, The Room Where It Happens, right? So you were in the room, you were not just in the room where it happens, you were trying to shape the discussions uh, that have gone on for months. Uh, but appeared then to that went on for months between the first time this was paused and then uh, and then when it was resumed in the Knesset. Uh, what was it like being in the room? Uh, what's what's the tone and tenor? Is it completely different in the room? Inside they're being so respectful and dignified, and it's all substance. Whereas outside everybody's throwing uh, you know rotten tomatoes at each other. Or uh, or was it the same way in the room? Well, Eric, it's Israel. You cannot expect people to call each other distinguished. The distinguished member from uh, Yerucham and the distinguished member from Tel Aviv, right? It, it doesn't work here that way. No, but when you mentioned it, I thought that it might be a, you know, a nice touch for the discussions. First of all, about, about the room, um, I'm a part of a team. I'm part of a team uh, appointed by President Herzog. Uh, the team leader is uh, Ovadi Cheskel, who is uh, the lead negotiator. We, I'm... Ed, me and the Tachlit Institute are assisting him in terms of uh, professional, the professional arm of the negotiation team, and there are other members of the team that are uh, uh, the president, uh, chief of staff, and the president, uh, CEO. Uh, so we're a five-people team, uh, and the legal advisor, six-people team, trying to find ways of agreement between coalition and opposition. Coalition is represented. Let me take you into the room. There's a two. You see it as a, as a conference room, right? There is the middle uh, uh, table with the president's team. And then on the right side of the room, there's the coalition, eight people representing coalition, both politicians and the experts. Left side, uh, opposition, both politicians from the two main parties of the opposition and their experts, eight people in each delegation. And we are sitting in, we have been sitting in that room from, for, quite a while, trying, first of all, to map the issues of disagreement around the reform, and then try to find areas in which we can find consent. Now, it's not a regular negotiation, that's for sure, but also not a regular political negotiation. And, and why? Because if you look at the debate that we have in Israel, I, I would define it as a three floors debate. There's the basic floor, of professional level, right? We disagree on legal issues, legal structure. You, you mentioned uh, uh, earlier some of the details. We'll discuss them later. But that's the basic floor. That's easy or easier than the other's floor. Above that, there's the political floor. And we have a flawed political system, and uh, 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 I would say not just diverse, but polarized political system in Israel. And the Israeli politics is failing to find ways to discuss with each other internally for the past few years. And that just, you know, 
another complication that went on the basic floor of, of, of professional floor. And there's the third one, and, and that's the most uh, important one, I think, and that's the floor of the clash of identities, right? This prot the protest on one hand and the reform on the other hand represents a clash between two different types or even more than two different types of Israel and their identity is being uh, represented uh, within that room. So if you try to look at, just, just to conclude it, if you try to look at it, it's not just a professional negotiation or political and professional negotiation. To some extent, there were negotiations on the identity of Israel as we see it and of its future. This is why it was so complicated and still is. So, so I, I want to say, I want to delve into that more deeply, uh, Yaniv, because I'm not sure I understand how you discuss across a conference table, uh, you know, in this very formal setting, the identities of the people, the identities of the state. And let me add to that that, you know, your earlier point was that there's been this lack of political dialogue, really. There's been political conflict and no political dialogue. Uh, I want to reflect that this uh, debate was going on leading up almost to the Pesach break. There was supposed to be votes. And then the prime minister called a halt uh, over the break from uh, Pesach until uh, after uh, Yom Ha'atzma'ud, after the, after the Independence Day of Israel. Uh, so the first round of negotiations was going on then. Uh, then, then when the Knesset resumed, um, there was uh, uh, further protests and, I, and maybe further discussions at, at Beit Tanasi, but it, didn't, it, it collapsed and they passed uh, this one provision that is called the reasonableness provision. Um, the reason I'm going into that debate is I, I had a conversation uh, on a webinar I did for for work, uh, you know, for our Jewish Federation system uh, with Yadija Stern from the Jewish People's Policy Institute, who had been involved in, in writing a compromise around the reasonableness provision. And one of the comments he made was no one was talking to each other directly. They were only talking through him or through intermediaries, like I suppose you, Yaniv. So, 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 say, say, how do you talk about the identity of the state in, in a formal setting? And also, when you've when they've spent years, the last few years, just talking at you know around each other in political campaigns, but not to each other. Were there was there substantive discussion? Were they able to really talk to each other now? Because it seems like nobody's talking to anybody. Uh, uh, in Israel, unless, except for the people that agrees with them. So you asked a lot, many questions. So I'll try to answer them <laughs> one by one. <laughs> first of all, yeah. So first of all, let's let's go to the identity issue. We're not discussing identity, but we discuss professional issues that represents identities, right? Let's take, for example, uh, the reasonableness clause, right? It's uh, professional tool by the, used by the court in order to uh, decide whether a decision made by a decision maker uh, was a reasonable one. Now, the question, that's the professional tool. The question behind it is a, a deeper one, and that goes to the question who, that asks who has the last word? Who is determining what the country would look like? Is it the elected, appointed decision makers? Or does the court have some kind of way to overrule their decision using such and such tools, such as the reasonable clause, right? So while you're discussing the professional items, and we did discuss them in the room, 
and the parties have discussed them, you remember that's a bigger, the, the big, there's a bigger question around it or behind it. Now, as for the part that people don't discuss with each other, that's true. We don't discuss with each other. Both, part, both sides of the aisle, let's call it, uh, are not discussing with each other as they should have, but there are discussions. And there are attempts to have uh, compromise and solutions and, and understandings. It's just that we are in a complicated situation which when people discuss with each other, they cannot reach an agreement. They cannot reach an understanding for two reasons, by the way, or two main reasons. First and foremost, there's no trust. No trust between the parties whatsoever. Everyone, each party thinks that the, second, the, the other party wants to... Um, uh, I would say, has improper intentions towards the other party. And no one believes each other, especially in the political system. And you cannot blame them, by the way, after five election cycles, almost in a row. That's one problem, the trust, the lack of trust. The second issue is that we didn't take care of those issues for many years. And um, they've been piled up. And all of a sudden, we are being required to solve them in a matter of months or weeks. It's almost impossible. Judge Breyer, the American uh, Supreme Court judge, uh, was here in Israel last week. We invited him to a visit. And when he told us, uh, and he was, uh, I, I had the privilege of being with him uh, in a few occasions during that visit, I, uh, we escorted him. And he told us something interesting about the American Constitution. Uh, that it's, it's an interesting story, you could find it online, but the concept of obeying the Constitution, it took a while for the, for the states and for the federal level to get into that concept. It takes time. And in Israel, like in Israel, we try to do things fast and uh, uh, work on it uh, and try to solve issues of, of decades in a matter of weeks and months, and that doesn't work. So the lack of trust and the complexity of issues uh, put on the table, solving it was very difficult. Uh, let me tell you a story, Eric, about something that happened inside the room, and I think that represents the, st the current status of the, of the state of Israel of that negotiation. During the negotiations, we uh, came to a point in which we understood that there is uh, the parties, uh, some kind of a deadlock, let's call it. And we thought, what well, we can do with that, right? It happens a lot in negotiations that we are in a deadlock and we try to shift gears and to change some kind of, um, of a pattern. So we brought Dr. Micha Goodman, which is an Israeli philosopher, thinker, uh, well-known uh, internationally, of course, in Israel. And Micha Goodman has its way of describing the situation in Israel in a way that would fit everyone. Everyone listen to him and can understand. He has a a virtue of describing the situation in a way that would be um, clear to everyone. So we decided to bring him over to the negotiations in one morning. First, he would discuss it with the opposition team and then discuss it with the coalition team. One hour and a half with each, with each team. When we, the president's team, had the privilege of sitting in both, both rooms and listening listen to the same pitch, mostly the same pitch, being uh, uh, conveyed first to the opposition and then to the coalition about the status in Israel, about what divides us and what unites us and about the, uh, the polarized society and a way to address it and so on and so forth. And the funny thing was 
that although it was the same speech, the reactions were the complete opposite. Coalition and opposition representatives, or the experts that were with them, reacted com almost completely differently to the same situation, to the same description, not to the conclusions, to the description. When Micha Goodman described a position in which the court has uh, an overwhelming or a big, some claim that the court has a bigger power than it should have, so the opposition objected it, and coalition told him that he's uh, belittling it. And uh, uh, in other cases, so I, I, won't, I won't reveal the exact content of the conversation, but what we saw there was two states of Israel listening to the same speech and having a complete opposite reaction. And I think that that represents the current situation on the current issue that we're discussing. So, Yaniv, uh, just following up on one point you made, and then, then I want to move on to talk about the pretty remarkable protests that have been organized. You make a very compelling case that, uh, you know, Israel's trying to solve in a short period of time issues that, that took us in America years and years, right? To, we, we don't, we, some, some of us like to forget the Constitution wasn't the first thing. It wasn't 1776, right? We had the Articles of Confederation. It took years. The Constitutional Convention went into hiding to, to come up with something in private because they didn't know. And then they still had to add the Bill of Rights after they finished the Constitution before in order to get it ratified. We've had, and then arguably the Civil War amendments added a whole nother, created a whole nother constitutional level for us. So, so this is something, if you think about it, we understand. Um, part of this uh, crisis, it seems, was caused because the new government came in and and declared they were going to they were going to push through these changes in six weeks or whatever uh, the time was. Of course, that obviously hasn't happened. But is there a growing consensus that this is an issue that must be dealt with? The develop whether it's writing a constitution or just simply uh, you know building a, a stronger set of rules around. A judicial review and the role of the courts and, and you know and the legislature or is this just you know zero sum we're going to win or lose this fight and then you know then there'll be another then there'll be another election and 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 we just move on to the next thing because i will say that for us also as well as as observers of israel and, and people who love israel deeply and have been involved in every crisis in Israel in the last, in, in all of the 75 years of Israel's history, this wasn't the top agenda item for us, right? We, we've been involved with, uh, you know, Aliyah and religious pluralism and civil society and defense, you know, supporting defense and security and Iran and what, whatever, you know, whatever the issue of the day was, terror, fighting terrorism and, you know, whatever the issues of the day were, but we weren't talking about this. Will it now be on our agenda and the Israeli agenda until it's resolved? Or are we just going to like move on as soon as this crisis is over? Well, you know what they say about prophets, so I'm not sure. <laughs> but what I can say is that I think that we have a new notion in Israel that the rules of the game, the rules of the democratic game, cannot be legislated by one party. I think that we have a notion that the rules of the democratic game should be uh, agreed upon in some structural way that would uh, put us all on the same, uh, or, or some kind of consensus. It doesn't have to be 100%, but it has to be a critical mass of agreement between Israelis. Now, what changed the game, and you, you've mentioned it, and I think it's a, it's a good uh, intro to our next topic, 
is mostly Israeli civil society. We saw, some can argue that we saw a political system, uh, a failed political system, this is what I'm claiming, and a very problematic gov government for that, for that matter that have tried to change significant rules of the game in, in, in a matter of, of weeks. That's one uh, part of the equation. The second part of the equation is that we saw an unprecedented civil society in Israel, a vigorous civil society, coming together, by the way, finding the glue together, uh, understanding that they should fight for their country. And in some stages of the protest, and that's a question that we should debate upon, but in some stages of the protest, it was the, the, the agreement around the, the, between the protesters have crossed the political size of Israel. There were 10, 15 percent of coalition supporters supporting the, the protests. It means that some of the people that have supported that coalition and supported the changes, and by the way, I also think that there should be a change in Israel's judicial system. I think it's a significant issue. I think the democratic rules of the game of Israel should be changed and should be amended. This is why I've put it on, on our institute agenda. But the people that thought that it's an important issue that should be changed and reformed, they didn't think that that's the way to do it. And they protested. And they went out to the streets for 30 something weeks now. So we're in a position that, and I will say it at the end once again, but there's a room for optimism because democracies are being tested not by the strength of their governments, but also by the strength of their civil society and also the strength of their systems and also the, 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 the debate within the, the communities and the media. And on that criteria, Israel is blooming democracy. I want to push on that, Yaniv, because um, I, I want that to be true, um, but I'm not sure it is because, of course, I'm, I, I have been there for some of the pro and seen some of the, I was at the Knesset one, one day when the, the first big march on the Knesset happened. I have been on a Saturday night to Tel Aviv to, you know, to observe what's happening. And I know people who marched, you know, the, the week they marched from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I talked to people, got pictures sent to me, you know, from the, uh, from the march. But it feels to me like those who support the government are denigrating the protests, are trying to, um, uh, you know, describe it as just a political, you know, uh, thing, trying to associate it with the more extreme elements, you know, the, the blocking the highway and, and trying to belittle it as opposed to crediting that this is a coming together uh, of a diverse group, as you said, even including many who supported the, you know, the coalition. So, I mean, certainly the you know, the government ministers have been very critical of the protests. The prime minister just almost gives it the back of his hand with, you know, uh, when when he speaks of it. Uh, and that gets repeated here, you know, by outlets that agree with the prime minister. And there's, you know, as you know, there's many outlets here who are trying to amplify his position, just like there are outlets amplifying the protests. That, you know, prove to me that, that, this, that this is bringing together civil society and not further dividing it. No. So first of all, let's, let's, let's frame the question. Whether it's an issue that divides, Israel, that unites Israel civil society, the answer is yes, right? We haven't seen it in a while, uh, never actually, such a vigorous 
process, such a long-term process, a strong one that actually makes a government change its position on, a, on, a, on an issue that the government has decided it's critical for it, right? The Israeli government came to power, decided that the judicial issue is, is something of merit to uh, its policy, this put on the table some kind of a reform, and decided not to push, not to keep on going with the reform as a result of a pressure. Never happened before, or almost never happened before in Israel on significant issues. Think of the disengagement, think of wars, think of other uh, precedents in Israel's history. Civil society protests that made the government change, significantly change position on a, on, on, on a, main, on a main core issue, didn't happen before. So that's, I think that's a fact where, where now you, you, you've mentioned the override clause. Prime Minister Netanyahu mentioned that it's no longer on the table, but there are the many issues that are no longer at the table. There are many significant issues that are on the table, but we're not in the same position as we were in, in January 4th. That's for sure. And that's mainly as a result of a pressure, not just internal, also external pressure, but I think that the engine of the pressure was Israel civil society. Of course, uh, economy and, and, and others, but it all relates back uh, uh, to the people of Israel getting out to the streets. Whether the government respects it or not, it's a dif different question, and I think that I'm not here to defend the government because I think that some of the, of, of the behavior of some of, the, uh, of our ministers is uh, uh, inexcusable. But I think that you see quite an interesting uh, tangle between the government and the, the protest. For many uh, months during the protest or during the, the, the last eight months, uh, the protest got a room to express its opinion and to express its uh, anti-government uh, wishes. So I don't expect the government to say I, um, I support the protest and I uh, adhere with their, with their wishes, but I do expect the government to allow the protest to, uh, to do it. And, 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 and in that case, I think that in most cases, we're, we're still in, in a good shape, pretty good shape relatively, right? We're in a bad shape, but just for the sake of discussion on that question. Now, if we discuss the protest itself, actually, I have some, some data or some, some interesting uh, information that they can put on the tables. Because I think that communities are built not just on the issues that divide them, but also, and mainly for the long run, on what unites them, right? So. While the loudest part of communities are the extreme minorities, and that's what we hear, both in the protests and in the government's uh, supporters, the silent parts of communities are also the moderate ones. They want to get consensus on most issues within the community and avoid the conflict that is tearing us apart. A good example for that is while we had the discussions in the President Herzog residence, you saw the extremes of both sides shouting there is no Nothing, no room for negotiations, no room to, for compromise. There is nothing that we can agree upon. But you actually saw the majority of Israelis asking for different thing, for a different thing. They were asking the parties to reach to some kind of settlement. Our survey conducted during the negotiations showed that 64% of Israeli voters, 64%, and by the way, it's crossed across the aisle, 
were hoping that their leaders would reach to an agreement. They actually expected that no compromise, they anticipated that no compromise would be achieved, achieved, but hoping and wishing to have one. And they were willing to waive some of the wishes in order to have an amicable solution. So it means that the majority of people, both in the protest and the people that support the government, are asking to unite the community and locate areas of consent. And the extremes what, that you hear the most and that are controlling the conversation here, both here inside Israel and outside, actually minorities, uh, or the minority in that case, asking for a divide. So we're starting to come, come to the end of our conversation. Um, you've mentioned a couple times that you're optimistic. That was a modestly optimistic response. I, I don't want to say that you've, that you've uh, you know, started to be jumping up on my chair, but, um, uh, but will that, you know, I guess, uh, does that cons- do we anticipate that that consensus center that wants a negotiation and wants compromise, even if they don't know what it is exactly, but th- that that will hold and grow and will it eventually become reflected in the political reality? You know, or as often happens, and you know, arguably it's happening in America too right now, that those who are seeking a more centrist approach, their voices aren't being heard within each, uh, each major political party. So first of all, Eric, I don't think we have an alternative but being optimistic. That's my starting point to start with. Most Israelis understand that we don't have an alternative. There are some that are leaving the country. There are some. Most of us are trying to find some way to live together. Now, is it something that I can see in the coming uh, weeks or months that we are solving the issues between us and becoming a, a peaceful country and no demonstration and no protest? I don't think that we are there yet. I think that we are in a position of a clash. However, it's managed. In most cases, it's not a violent one. I hope that the parties won't escalate to violence. And I, I, I will tell you what I do see uh, within the government and the opposition that keeps me optimistic. I think that the leaders of the government, the main ones, and of the opposition, in case of the government, most of them, and in case of the opposition, I think, same here, most of them, <laughs> are looking, are understand, understand the severity of the situation and understand that they need to act and take leadership in order to prevent a catastrophe. And I'm saying it based on conversation I had with them and I'm sure that you had it with them as well. So all parties rec- recognize their historical responsibility for the, for the time being, and it's being signified. Uh, we saw it in the, in the president residence negotiations. We see it in, in, in discussions that we are having offline now. And I hope that at some case, at a certain point, it will prevail. And what we'll see is leadership in Israel. Because if we will see leadership, both in opposition and coalition, of people that are willing to waive some of their wishes or some of their idea, uh, dreams, in order to find a solution for that situation and calm down the country, we'll be able to get there. Because if I mentioned the three floors, the, politi- the 
professional political identity, the professional floor can be solved. I'm dealing with it uh, day and night. It can be mitigated. It, we can find understandings on the professional level. The identity level, it's going to take a while. We're going to have it as a discussion in Israel, as a vigorous debate in Israel for the, for the following years, at least years. Therefore, we need some courage by the politicians, by the political level, in order to solve, solve the, the, the professional issues and letting us have that debate based on agreed upon rules of the democratic debate. And if I can say one more thing about the, the, the Jews, uh, the American Jews in diaspora uh, and their role, lived in the States, worked many years with, with, with people across uh, North America. I think that your support in Israel is um, super, super important, especially on these days. The message that I think should be conveyed about Israel in those days is that Israel is a young democracy fighting to survive, um, struggling with so many complexities and so many issues, strong civil society, good people that are trying to make it work. What we need is a support, a belief that we can do it. And that's something that, uh, you know, that not just unites us as a people, but also gives us some, uh, I think, strength for the future. Well, Yaniv, what I was actually going to say, it, it is optimistic to me that, that, that you believe that this center is, is holding and hopefully, and God willing, the political leadership is going to begin to reflect it. Uh, what I was going to say is what, where you went to. I, I hope you can also convey in that room, when you're in the room, there's no doubt in my mind that the overwhelming majority of the leadership of the North American Jewish community also devoutly prays for that kind of coming together. We're not trying to dictate how Israel's system of democracy and checks and balances should work. We know it's not going to look like ours, um, uh, but we do see those lurking identity crises behind this political debate, and it scares us. And the political leadership that is trying to bring it together uh, I believe is going to have overwhelming support from the North American Jewish community. You saw it when President Herzog came to, to Washington, met with the president, uh, addressed a joint session of Congress, then was received at a, a, a overflowing reception in New York by the, the Jewish community leadership. I mean, the, the love and respect, and much of it, obviously a lot of it's historic be, because of, of, of who President Herzog is and his relationships to us, but, but also it was very much reflective of the role he's been playing in this moment and wishing him strength. So uh, I think you'll find that. But, but I also want to, you, you added a second point to us in North America that, I, that I, I want to affirm for you as well. And that is that certainly the Jewish Federation system that I have the privilege of working with but, but most of the American Jewish community has been involved in the project of building the Jewish state for over 100 years, right? For, for decades before it was uh, 1948, and certainly uh, for 75 years since. Um, and, uh, and we are not going to stop being involved in that project. Um, in fact, we understand that that project is not over, it's not complete, um, and, and nor should it be. Who would expect it to be complete after 75 years? It's a remarkable success thus far, and we want to be part of a constructive part of helping complete the project so that it can be the permanent uh, uh, Jewish state 
uh, Adha Olam. And again, this, this is a good time of year for us to be reflecting on that uh, in these uh, weeks of comfort after Tisha B'Av uh, and, uh, and as we head into uh, soon uh, into the month of Elul. Uh, Yaniv Cohen, thank you for your work and your leadership. Uh, I'm, I'm even more glad that you're the person in the room uh, with these parties as they're negotiating. And thank you for helping the president to take these initiatives forward. Uh, Yaniv Cohen is the founder and chairman of Tahlit, the Israel Institute uh, for Public Policy, and has been one of the lead negotiators in the recent compromise talks over Israel's uh, judicial reform. Uh, that's it for this episode of The Glue. I thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, the Glue is executive produced by Neve Ellis and produced by uh, Mary Rose Madden. Uh, our next episode will be out around the high holidays. To make sure you don't miss it, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. It helps other people find the podcast. If you have any comments or feedback, please write us at podcast at jewishfederations.org. And of course, there are so many ways that you can play a part in being the glue that holds your community together uh, by becoming active in your local Jewish Federation. Find out how at www.jfeds.org backslash the glue. Uh, I'm Eric Fingerhut, and I'll catch you next time on The Glue.